0: that we discussed how we do actually need each other and that it's not a bright idea to disconnect ourselves from one another because we had mentioned that one of the Hebrew words that the church is very fond of is that word shalom nothing broken nothing missing peace restoration wholeness all the things that are encapsulated in that word but we also mentioned that that word is not a standalone word that word is actually derived from an entirely different Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is shalim. Y'all remember that? Shalim has to do with personal relationships. It has to do with connectedness. And what it means, this is in the economy of God, you don't have what it takes to make it on your own. In the book of Genesis, it says that it is not good for man to be alone. And we broke that down and we talked about how that word good doesn't just mean It's not just a qualification of this is good, that is bad. It actually has to do with the ability to live life according to God's plan. You can't be fruitful alone. You can't can't agree with anyone when you're alone. You need other people, and other people need you. And we need to be connected so that we can become more than who we are. Because without connectedness, we can have no shalom. Hmm? Because if you have what I need, if you have my missing part and I cut myself off from you, how am I ever going to be whole? Right? Well, today we're going to talk about how life follows vision. You know that if you've been with us for any length of time, life is a big deal to me. In fact, life is really the question to me. It is the quest. The Bible says that Jesus came to give us life. And I know that at a great many churches, I've been in many of them, and I'm sure you have, it seems as if their mission statement is to prepare people for death. Everything's about the afterlife. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's fine and good. I think it's really missing the point, though, because death is going to come naturally to all of us if Jesus tarries. You're not going to have to really teach me to die when the time comes. It'll happen. What you and I need is someone to teach us how to live, Death ain't complicated. Life is. Hmm? And so, you know, we've taught whole series on life and we'll continue to teach whole series on life because life is what it's all about. He came to give us life. And we need to learn how to live life in the manner that pleases Him. We need to learn how to live life in a way that we can complete His dream. The dream that God has, it remains unchanged. He didn't change it because man sinned in the garden. That's the reason why the scripture refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Because he came to complete the job the first Adam surrendered. Hmm? So that we could live life according to his original design. Well, one of the things about life that we, we need to realize is although some people live life as if it has no rhyme or reason, they just, you know, they, they live life like water runs down a hill. They always choose the path of least resistance. And the problem with that is this. All the enemy of life has to do is put a couple obstacles in your path, and he can completely change your course. Hmm? Yeah, I many? When I was a kid, I, and I think every kid, I, would, I used to like making a little dirt hill and pouring water on it to watch how it would go down. And you could completely change the course of that water simply by moving a little bit of dirt here and removing a little dirt. Bur- bit of dirt there. And that water would always choose the path of least resistance. Some people live life that way. So all the enemy has to do is throw a little obstacle up here, remove a little obstacle there, and he controls you like a puppet on a string. Some people have been conditioned to believe that you just roll with life, that you just take life however it comes. You know, you just you just live with it. You just roll with it. But Even to them, even to a person who believes that they just adapt to circumstances, that's really not true. Because life doesn't follow circumstances, life follows vision. The problem is these people have been conditioned to let the environment that they find themselves in set the vision for their lives. You following me? This is the reason why we see this cycle repeated many times over and over, hurt people hurt people. Hmm? Because the, the circumstances that they came up in set their vision and their vision was such that they repeated the cycle. Yes. Abused people abuse people. It goes on and on and on. Children raised in homes uh, dominated by addictions tend out to have addictive personalities. Why? Because their vision was set by their circumstances. But life does not follow circumstances. Life always follows Vision. Let me say something to you. Listen to this. The vision of life you hold creates the type of life you experience. Can I say that again? The vision of life you hold creates the type of life you experience. If you can change your vision, you can change your life. Let me just, let me, let me get personal. Because I grew up in an environment of professional welfare recipients. People who had no vision other than the next government check. So I know what I'm talking about when I speak of this. The world has a viewpoint that conditions create life. So they believe, listen, that poverty gives birth to addictions, to crime, to terrorism, and to all other manners of evil and ill in the world so the world believes if they can just alter the circumstances, they can change the behavior. But they're continually frustrated because they pour untold millions of dollars into changing someone's condition, only to find that though they change the condition momentarily, the, the, the person that for whom they change the condition always makes the new condition like the old condition. Hmm? I'm I'm telling you, I've experienced this. I know, I've lived in government housing, and and when I was a kid, we'd get moved from this government project to that government project. We'd get moved to a nicer community, a nicer home, but in only a short period of time, that nicer home looked a lot like the older home. Hmm? Why? Because the government successfully changed our condition, but never changed our vision. Our vision was like that, so we turned that into that. This is why when, when, God, when you pray for God to alter your circumstances, he gives you a vision. He either tweaks your vision, gives you a new vision, or gives you better focus on your vision because God changes your vision before he changes your circumstances because he's got more sense than the government. He knows that if he changed your circumstance without altering your vision, all you're going to do is turn that into that. So he gives you a new vision because, listen, There's something about people of vision. If you can give somebody a view of life that they don't presently have, if you can convince somebody that they're better off than where they presently are or they're meant for more than what they have, then they will change, they'll overcome any set of circumstances and they'll overcome their condition so that their condition adapts to their vision. You can't change people of vision. You give them a junkyard, they'll turn it into a flower garden. Right? But if somebody doesn't have a vision for that junkyard, it goes untouched. Hmm? Listen, God, our Father, Jehovah, the creator of all that exists, is a visionary. He's the ultimate visionary. What is a visionary? A visionary is somebody who has a detailed, specific view of the future. They they see something other people don't see. That's why they're referred to as a visionary. They have a view of the future, a specific vision of the future. Listen, I'm just trying to lay the groundwork before we get into the word. Because of God's vision, he's capable of changing the circumstances, but he's incapable of being changed by the circumstances. You hear me? Let me say that again. God, because of his vision, his clear and distinctive view of the future, is capable of changing circumstances. But he's incapable of being changed by circumstances. You'll find as you and I learn about the power of vision and we bring a vision for our life into clearer focus, we become immune to our circumstances. But if our vision is blurry, if we've lost focus of our vision, or if we've given up on our vision, we become victimized by our circumstances. Is anyone with me this morning? If you don't have a vision for anything better than what you have, you'll accept what you have. And some folks believe that Christianity is passive acceptance. But that's not Christianity of the Bible. Because the Christianity of the Bible, listen, is aggressive construction. Can I say that again? It's not about passive acceptance. It's aggressive construction. The closer we get in our walk with God, the more we line up our thinking with His. the more aggressive we become in reconstructing our environment to line up with the view that God has. We don't accept things the way they are. We change them according to the divine plan. We become aggressive in our reconstruction. You put us somewhere, we change it. We ain't, we ain't passive acceptance. We're aggressive construction. Hmm? We change light or darkness into light. We change ashes into beauty. We change sorrow into joy. We change sickness into health. Hmm? Hmm. Go to the book of Genesis chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me me throw this phrase at you. Write this down. You'll need to remember this. Because you're going to have to combat it every day. The world preaches that conditions generate life. So if you can change someone's condition, you can change their life. And they stick with that no matter how many times it proves to be false. What you and I need to realize is conditions do not generate life. Vision generates life. Life follows vision changing one's life even yours or mine isn't about changing condition It's about changing the vision this is the reason why I said listen when you and I pray God change this or change that we need to be aware that the way he's going to change it is by affecting something within us so when you pray God change this environment change this condition alter this situation you need to be very sensitive to what gets tweaked inside Y'all follow me? Because you're praying about a circumstance, but God deals with your vision. And if we're not aware that this is the way he changes things, we'll think he's ignoring our prayer because we're praying for a situation to get changed and it ain't been changed. And God will say, no, I changed it a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I wish somebody would hear me. God, you need to change my house. You need to change my home. You need to change my job. You need to change my wife. You need to change my husband. You need to change my children. And you're praying for God to change a circumstance. And as soon as you pray, he tweaked your vision. But if you're waiting for him to affect your circumstance, you're going to be ignorant of the fact he already changed it by tweaking your vision. So when you pray for God to alter a circumstance, be aware of a change within the inside. You begin to see something different or you get an idea. Follow that idea because God tweaks the vision. God is always, from the book of Genesis to Revelation, guided people through mental images. You can call them dreams, visions, revelation. He gives you a picture of what could be so that you can can alter what is into what should be. So the way that God changes a life is by altering a vision or changing the vision, not changing the condition. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. If you'll help me, I'll pull through this real fast so I don't keep you too long today. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving, over the surfaces or the surface of the waters. Now stop there. You know that in the, in the verses that come after verse 2, 3, right on through, God began to systematically change conditions, did he not? Now let me ask you this. Why didn't God just roll with what he found? Why didn't he just accept things the way they were? Because he couldn't. His vision of the future could not not harmonize with the conditions he found, so he had to change his condition to fit his vision. You following me? If God had no clear, distinctive view of the future, he simply would have left what he found untouched. But he couldn't leave his yard in the condition it was because he he had a vision of what it could be right? So in order to turn what was into what could be, he had to cut down a few trees and remove that junky old truck that's been up on blocks for a year. He had to clear out some garbage and plant some plants in. He had to fix some things because he had to improve what was because what was was not conducive to what could be. So if you are a person of vision, you're constantly tinkering and because you're trying to tweak what is to fit the vision that you have of what could be. But if you've got no vision for your yard, for your house, for your body, for anything else, you just roll with it. Whatever will be, will be. But that's not Christianity. That's stupidity. And there's a big difference, right? Because God didn't call us to be passive. He called us to be aggressive. God expects you and I to operate in the same way he operates. He doesn't just accept things the way they are. He alters them. Go to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Well, actually, stay in Genesis 1 and go to verse 26. Listen to this. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's what I want you to see as we go to Genesis 2. God gave man a task, did he not? A mandate, a commission. He wanted man to get involved with his environment. Now in Genesis 2, go to verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7. The scripture says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now verse 8, which comes after verse 7. I know that's deep. But I wanted you to be aware of that. Verse 8 comes after verse 7. Verse 8 says this, And the Lord God planted a garden Toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now, here's why this is important: because despite the artwork that you've seen, man was not created in the garden. The garden did not cover the earth. The art, the garden, in, covered a very small parcel of soil. It was in a very specific place. It didn't even cover Eden. It was eastward in Eden. Kind of say it was over in the corner. And God formed man, and then he guided man. He took man to the garden. You've heard me. I think you probably have heard me preach the purpose of the garden. We're going to kind of go back to that teaching. The garden served a very specific purpose. Here's what it was. The earth was good. Because after, the, the, when, in the, in the in the account of creation, when God created everything, the scripture says he looked out over and he said it was good. Right? But it wasn't developed. The garden was the only place that was developed. And God took man whom he had formed to the garden because he had commissioned man to subdue the earth, to fill it and be fruitful, did he not? Well, he took man to the garden and he gave man a vision. He said, This is what that should be. Follow me? He gave man a vision. He gave man a commission, fill the earth, subdue it, cause it to be fruitful, master it. But without a vision, Adam wouldn't know how to do it. So God planted a garden over in the corner. And then he took the man whom he had formed by the hand, led him into the garden, and he said, this is what I want that to look like. Now go do it. Lord, where am I going to get the resources? All the seeds you need are in the garden. Take the seeds from the garden and replant them out there. Cause that to be like this. God wants you and I to be involved with the altering of our environment. This is the reason why when you pray for your environment, he gives you a vision because he started that process way back with Adam. And if he did it with Adam, he's going to do it with you. You pray for something to change and God will give you a mental image. Okay, this is what it should be. You pray for God to prosper you. He gives you the vision of a business. You pray for God to change someone. He gives you a vision of how you ought to behave. Because when you pray for your condition, he gives you, or when you pray for your condition, he gives you a vision. Because life always follows vision. (laughs) And saying, listen, here's something you have to understand. The environment that Adam found himself in was good. But it wasn't yet fruitful. Because it was undeveloped. Adam had to develop the thing. How does that apply to us? How many people have good ideas from which they never eat the fruit? Why? Because a good idea isn't worth anything until it's developed. You've got to take that which is good and develop it into more than what it was in order for it to bear fruit. So when, listen... God, I'm tired of being broke. I need some money. So God gives you a vision of something you can sell. He gives you a vision of somewhere you can go and get a job. He gives you a vision of some change you can make. Life follows vision. If we're unaware of that, we're going to ignore the visions in our heart, thinking that our vision, our vision is reliant upon our conditions. And when circumstances change to fit our vision, then everything will be okay. And we wait day after day and month after month and year after year for our conditions to line up with our vision. And our conditions never line up with our vision until we force our condition to line up with our vision because we change it Through the power of God's word. Right? I hope I'm not preaching to myself. I kind of feel like I am. God wants us to take something that is good and make it productive or fruitful through development. When a person takes something that is good and develops it, even the world refers to that person as a person of vision. Hmm? They call them visionaries because they take a good idea and they work and they work and they work until they develop the thing. How many other people had good ideas? Listen, history is filled with people that had good ideas but never benefited from them because they never developed them. Just recently I heard the story about the man that had the idea for text messaging, but he never patented it. Never developed it. He's never received a penny of royalties from it. He had the idea. But he never developed it. Through the vision of something as simple as a text message on a cell phone, his family could have been changed for generations to come. Y'all following me? How many saints have had good ideas but because it took a little bit of work, a little bit of effort, they let it go undeveloped and left it live for someone else to pick up. I remember years ago, I heard a pastor named Willie George talk of how he ran up against the circumstance. He had a dream of developing some Sunday school curriculum. And this was way, I think this was back in the early 80s. He, he met up with the publisher and he wanted to find out how much is it cost, going to cost to develop the Sunday school curriculum? And it was going to cost $50,000. And that was back in the early 80s. And he said at that time, his, his yearly salary was $10,000. And he said, that was a good price. So I had an idea. I'll take up an offering in the church. And so he did. And he said the church rose to the occasion, and they gave $3,000. Problem was, that was $47,000 short. And so he went into prayer, and he said, God, you know, I, I know I'm supposed to develop the Sunday school curriculum. I need some money. And he said, the Lord told him, I've already given it to you. Well, he found that kind of perplexing because he had no money in his bank account. So he, he, I love the way he relayed the story. He ran out to the mailbox and flung it open to see somebody sent a check for 47000 He said the only thing in his mailbox were bills. So he began to tear apart the, the seats and the couches in his house thinking, you know, maybe there's a whole bunch of quarters hidden in that couch. He never found anything but dimes and pennies. And the more he prayed about it, the more determined God became in saying, I've already given you the money. And he said he got to the place in prayer. He said, well, if God, you've given it to me, you hit it awfully well. I can't find it. And the Lord said, it's in your children's curriculum. He had developed a children's church curriculum, but he never had a vision of it beyond just his local house. But when God tweaked his vision... He took took his Sunday school curriculum, took it to a Xerox machine, and just began to copy off black and white photos and began to sell them and in a very short period of time raised $50,000. He always had the money. He just didn't have the vision for it. But when God tweaked his vision, he suddenly saw what he had not seen before, that he always had it. You following me? So when we pray for God to change our circumstances, he's going to tweak your vision. And if we're not aware of what he's doing, that he's answering our prayer, we're thinking he didn't hear us. So we pray more determinedly. God, you really need to change this. And God says, I really already did. No, Lord, you don't understand. It ain't been changed. And God's going, well, change it. And you're going, but with what? So God tweaks your vision to see that you have more available to you than you ever thought you did. You've got talents, you've got gifts, you've got resources you never knew you had. And until God tweaks your vision to see something that you ain't never seen before, you don't realize how valuable what you have and who you are really is. There's somebody in the world that would pay you to solve their problem if you only saw yourself as the solution instead of the problem. Hmm. What does the scripture say of the unbeliever? It refers to the unbeliever as someone who walks in darkness, right? What does does walking in darkness mean? It means a lack of vision. You don't see well in darkness. When the scripture refers to unbelievers, it also refers to them as people who are blinded. They have no vision. They can't see. But when the scripture refers to believers, it talks about our day getting brighter, brighter, and brighter it talks about the Bible the Word of God being a light unto our path does it not what's it saying It's saying that to someone who doesn't walk with God they 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 find it hard to see what can't be seen they're limited to what their eyes can see but as you and I get closer and closer to God as we as we walk longer and longer with him and we we submit ourselves to the word and we submit ourselves to the spirit Our ability to see what can't be seen by others becomes brighter and brighter. And our vision becomes clearer and clearer. We find that we have the ability to see things that we didn't see before. We see hope where we only used to see hopelessness. We see a path where before we only saw thistles. We see a way out where before we didn't see a way out. And when we see a way out of our circumstances, then we have the ability to take it. Everyone say, life follows vision. You don't have to wait for your circumstances to change. If you have a vision of what should be, then don't take that passive approach to life. Take an aggressive, reconstructionist approach to life. And if things aren't to your liking, if things agitate your spirit, if they ain't the way your heart knows they ought to be, then change them. Hmm? Because that's the way God does. It's the way he wants you and I to do. The enemy of life will fight you, though. He'll argue with you, and he'll try to corrupt your vision. He will use circumstances to try to convince you that your vision was never well-founded, that you ought to lower your standards and not shoot so high. Why does he fight your vision so hard? Because he knows if he can alter it or corrupt it, then you'll not have the strength to stand in the day of adversity. How many of you have ever been into a gym or watched an infomercial that was selling a piece of exercise equipment? Raise your hand. Come on. Now let me ask you this. Whether in the gym or in the infomercial, did you ever see a picture of Barney Fife flexing? Was he ever the one using the exercise equipment? No. They always have somebody who's near perfect physically. Do they not? They have a man who doesn't have an ounce of flab. They use a woman who has no flaws. Why? Because that's the image that will get you to push through the pain of exercise. Right? Because if your image is Barney Fife then when the pain of exercise comes, you're going to think, what's the use? I don't really want to look like that anyhow. So when the pain of the exercise comes, you're going to go, I ain't doing it. Right? But if you have an image of that Herculean Mr. America, everyone stand up, Steve. Let everyone see the image. If you have the right image, Then, when the pain of the exercise comes, you're going to push through. You all listen. You're going to push through the pain because your image is worth the pain. But if your vision is too small or too blurry or unfocused or non existent, then in the day of adversity, you're going to say, What's the use? Why should I keep trying? It never changes. Why should I keep pressing myself? Why should I keep trying to love everyone? Why should I even keep going to church? It never changes. And so you surrender in the day of adversity to your circumstances, not because the circumstances were anything different than anyone else has ever experienced, but because your image wasn't clear enough to help. Listen, the Bible says that Jesus endured the shame for the joy of what was set before him. Meaning Jesus was able to endure the pain of the moment. He was able to push through the adversity of circumstances because of an image that he had that nobody else saw. So he was able to push through the pain because of a vision that he had of what could be. So this is the reason why the enemy will work to corrupt your vision. He'll tell you, you don't come from the right side of the tracks. You don't have enough education. You could never be that anyhow. Your mama told you you couldn't. Your daddy told you you couldn't. Your aunt told you you couldn't. And so you surrender your vision to your circumstances. And when things get rough, which they will, you throw up your hands and say, well, you know what? I'm just going to quit going to church. I'm going to quit hanging out with those Christians. I'm going to quit trying. I, my Lord. Whatever will be, will be right? But if your vision is clear, then it doesn't matter what the enemy throws at you because hell or high water, you're going to push through because you know that nothing can. Listen, this is what kept Paul going. It didn't matter whether you stoned him or you left him shipwrecked out in the middle of the waters. It didn't matter if you chased him out of the city. It didn't matter what you did to Paul. He had such a clear vision that you couldn't defeat him. You couldn't even kill him. Because until the vision was completed, it couldn't be over. Everyone say life follows vision. So don't surrender your vision to uneducated people. Do not surrender your vision to blind folks. None of you would ever debate the color red with somebody who had been born blind. Blind. And yet when it comes to spiritual things, we debate our destiny all the time with people who can't see. People of no vision, no hope, no future because they don't walk with God. And yet we accept their judgments and their suppositions. They'll tell you, well, you know, you can't be healed. They never read the Bible in their lives, but they're going to act like scholars. And you're going to accept their judgment. That'd be like letting somebody who was born blind tell you red ain't red. Well, you know, red doesn't exist. What do you mean it doesn't exist? Why well, I ain't never seen it. Well, you ain't never seen nothing. I know, but I ain't never seen red. So if I ain't never seen red, red can't exist. That'd be like you saying, well, you know what? I guess you must be right. Red must not exist. So therefore, you get a lot of tickets because you run through that light. And when the officer pulls you over and says, why would you run that red light? You said, red, red don't exist. <laughs> how do you know? My blind cousin told me so. <laughs> huh? But think, how many times have we done that? Yeah. With our destiny and the things of the spirit. Yeah. Where we've accepted the opinions of people who don't know God. Have never fellowshiped with them. Yeah. And they'll tell us what can and cannot be. And we accept their opinions as if they can see. Yet the Bible clearly says they're blind. What are they blind to? Helen Keller, y'all is this helping you at all? Helen Keller said the most the saddest people on the planet are people who can see but have no vision. There are folks they can see but they ain't got no vision. So don't let blind people rob you of your vision. Go to the book of Proverbs trying to hurry up, honestly. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18 says this, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. The King James says that where there is no vision, the people perish. And I've heard some people preach that if you have no vision, you die. Well, there's lots of folks that are alive with no vision. This word unrestrained, or the word that the King James Version translates perish, is actually a Hebrew word that has a multiple of meanings. But if you look in in the Browns Dictionary of Hebrew words, I I love the way it, it says that this word can actually refer to hair when the turban is taken off. Uncombed and uncapped. When I read that, I thought, I get it. Where there is no vision, life is one long bad hair day. Mm? Uncombed, uncapped, unruly. Put up that picture. That's life with no vision. Next. It's uncapped, it's uncombed. And I know in today's society, some folks pay high big dollars to have hair that way. But this is what the scripture is saying, that when there is no vision, there's no course to life. There's no rhyme, there's no reason. You can't make heads or tails out of it. Life just is what it is. You need vision. Otherwise, hello, that's your life. Don't let life be one big, long Bad hair day. But without a vision, that's what it becomes. Because without a vision, you're a victim of everything that happens to you. Without a vision, every little thing somebody says can upset you. Without a vision, somebody doesn't shake your hand, pat you on the back, or make you have a comfortable seat. You're gone. You're somewhere else. Constantly looking for that thing that'll satisfy you, but nothing's going to satisfy you because you don't have a vision. And without a vision, how would you know if you find the right place if you don't know what the right place is? Years ago, shortly after I was born, my dad decided he was too immature to have a child, so he went on a round America trip. He hitchhiked for years across America. I didn't see him again until I was in my teens, and I asked him one time, I said, I said all those years that you were out wandering the streets, did you ever get lost? He said, no, I never got lost. I had nowhere to go there are people that live their lives that way you ask him did you ever miss the mark no I never had a mark did you ever achieve a dream no I never had a dream hmm. kind of scary isn't it how would you like to wake up next to that every morning Well, here's news for you. Your wife probably does. (laughs) Listen, you need to protect your vision by running with people of vision. Learn to be a person of vision by becoming a part of somebody else's vision. Go to the book of Luke, chapter 16. I'll close this in the next few moments. Luke, chapter 16, verse 12. The scripture says, and if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's. Who will give you that which is your own? Let me repeat that. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's. Who will give you that which is your own? There is a biblical principle, a kingdom principle, really. That if you and I want to become people of vision. We have to submit to somebody else's vision. In other words, listen, the only way to ever become a big thinker is to associate with big thinkers. The only way to ever become a visionary is to associate with visionaries. Become a part of somebody's vision who's bigger than yours, and it will rub off on you. Hmm? To this day, I'm an active participant in Bishop Tony Miller's vision. Anything he needs, and I tell him every time I talk to him, anything you need, let me know. Why? I'm not doing that for, really, I guess I'm doing it for selfish motives. Because the more I become a part of his vision, the more clearer mine becomes. Right? He who is not faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You don't learn how to be a visionary because you don't participate in anybody's vision. We need to protect our vision by running, associating with people of vision. And sometimes there's a price to be paid in that. I know I got family members who share my same last name. I don't like associating with them. I love them and I'll talk to them and I'll do things with them, but I don't hang with them because they have no vision. And when I get out of their presence, I always feel depressed. Because you spend five minutes with them and all you're told is how hopeless it is. And ain't nothing ever going to work. And you know, they just went through a divorce and they went through a divorce and high drama here and high drama there and ain't no peace to be found anywhere. I love them, but when I get out of their presence, I feel like I need to bathe. Hmm? I want to be around somebody who's going to make me believe that tomorrow can be better than yesterday. Right? Go to the book of First Corinthians, chapter nine. We're gonna close with this. Second Corinthians or First Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty-four. Has this blessed you at all today? Life follows vision, saints. Life follows follows vision do not surrender your vision to your circumstances if you don't have a vision get around someone who does it'll stimulate you and cause you to see things that you ain't never seen before the only way to break the cycle of welfare is to get out of that side of town that's harsh no that's reality i know 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Stop. Let me, let me. In my spirit, I heard someone say, well, then how are you ever going to change that part of town? I'll tell you how, because even in the scripture you see this, that you have to go away for a season to learn to become more than who you are before you can be sent back into those circumstances. Moses had to leave Egypt become more than who he was before he got sent back in Paul for 14 years was taken to another place and taught to be more than who he was before he was sent back into that environment God will take you out of an environment just to be able to send you back in but he'll get you out to change your mindset to change your outlook and to change your perspective Because if he throws you right back in and he ain't changed your vision yet, then all you're going to find is those old friends you used to hang with make you just like them once again. So I heard that. Don't get all holier than thou. Well, God wants you to change the darkness into light. Yeah, after you've learned how to recognize light, Jack. God's got to change you before you can change an environment. This is the reason why people get saved and they want to run off and be missionaries and they run off to the other side of the world and they get beat up. Hmm? Let God do what he's got to do. He'll send you. I don't know who that was for, but it was for somebody. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. I'm going to read this to you out of the contemporary English version. Listen to this. Paul said that you know many runners into a race, and only one of them wins the prize. So, he says, run to win. Hmm? You know that many runners into a race, and only one of them wins the prize. So run to win. Verse 25, Athletes work hard to win a crown that cannot last. But we do it for a crown that will last forever. I love this, verse 26. I don't run without a goal. And I don't box by beating my fist in the air. I love that. Paul's saying, look it, he said, I don't run without a goal. I know where I'm going. I've got a clear vision of the finish line. Do you know the difference between a car race and a a, a crash-up derby? no goal. When you're in a race, you have a point of origin, you have a destination and everyone's going. You get into one of those derbies, there ain't no goal. It's a bad hair day and everybody comes out damaged, right? Well, Paul's saying, don't live life like you're in one of those derbies. Live life like you're in a race. And if you're in a race, then run to win. The only way you're going to know how to run to win is know where the finish line is. Yeah. If you don't know where the finish line is, you ain't going to win. I remember when I, just the, the one, when I was in junior high and we had a track, they put me in the 440. You know, that's one time around. I thought I was in the 880. I didn't even know what race I was in. So I was just kind of casually, you know, I running. And I'm thinking, you know, you don't kick it in until like the last quarter. So I'm just running. Everyone's ahead of me, but that's okay. Cause I'm saving myself. By the time I get about to the 700 yard mark, man, I'm going to show them with my burst of speed. My plan was good. My goal was bad because I'm just casually, I never even broke a sweat and the race was over. I was like, dog, I had a good plan. I was going to beat everyone. Problem was, I was in the wrong race. Paul said, don't know what the goal is. If you're going to run, run to win. Know where you're going. Know if you're going in the right direction. Have a goal. Have a focus. Have a vision. Then he said, I don't box like one who's just beating the air. I box with a purpose. I know what I'm swinging at, and I know when I hit it. Amen. Solomon said that life without a vision is just one bad hair day. Everything's just where it is. Can't make any rhyme or reason out of it. Don't let life be like that. Bring your vision into focus. Say, Pastor, I don't have a vision. Then hook up with someone who does. Hook up with someone who sees a better tomorrow. And it'll stimulate your ability to see a better tomorrow. Because if you're a believer, you've got the ability to have vision. The scripture does not say, does it not say, that in those last days, your young men will, and your old men, you're going to be a people of vision, a people of mental images. You're going to see things that are not, and make them to be. Stand to your feet.